This is going to be talking about the sixth commandment, which is the commandment talking about murder. This will be one of those teaching type sermons because I'm not sure anyone here needs a 45 minute message on why you shouldn't murder someone, right? <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Uh, tonight we're going to look at the many facets about what's often misunderstood. We're going to deal with some weighty issues, the weightiest issues that are untalked about, I, I would say. But in beginning, we're going to be looking about, looking at the three biggest questions that I personally get when it comes to murder, when it comes to contradictions that people try to put at the feet of God or the Bible. Then we're going to look at what the sixth commandment forbids. And then we're going to finish off by what Jesus does mean in the mix, mix of this commandment. Exodus 20 verse 13 says, you shall not murder. This is pretty self-explanatory. In the original Hebrew, it says not murder. It's just two words. Now, people often get confused here because Number one, everybody would agree that it's wrong to murder someone. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, well, other religions, denominations. People have their causes for what they believe murder is justifiable in. But I'm just going to look at biblical issues tonight. And I think this is where we're going to camp out for most of the night. Because we as Christians can't really be concerned with what everybody else believes. We just have to be anchored in what the Bible says. Amen? This commandment is so clear, yet is so controversial. This commandment is used for political purposes, right? Most times people come right out of the gate when, when you, you witness to them and you ask them if they think that they're a good person, they'll say, well, I haven't committed murder, <laughs> right? They, they start with that one. It starts off with, I've never done this, this, or that, right? And some would say that murder is wrong just because murder is wrong. But murder is wrong because God says it's wrong. That is, is our foundation because it attacks the image of God in someone else. Human beings are created in the image of God. This is one of the contradictions or questions. We'll start with translational misunderstanding. Getting back to the verse, some translations have translated it, thou shalt not kill. You can read that in the King James Version. It says, thou shalt not kill. But the confusion comes between killing and murdering. And you may say, well, that sounds like the same, but it's really not. There are two different words here. In the New American Standard, it says, you shall not murder. In the King James, it says, you shall not kill. These words mean totally different things in regards to what in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. The word murder means ratsack. And this word is used a limited amount of times. And it means cold-blooded, premeditated murder. The word for kill is katal. And this word is the word that is used when it talks about self-defense or war or, or, or when somebody breaks into your house and you, and you, you know, kill them. I know it's, it's weird, <laughs> but, uh, it's just really heavy. It's, you know. Exodus 22, verse 2. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed in the process, the person who killed the thief is not guilty of 
murder. Okay, so there's a translational issue that people get confused with. And that's going somewhere because, number two, why does God say not to kill, yet he seemingly does? And you may say, well, God doesn't kill. That's not my God. Well, hold on before you get confused. I want to preface this by saying I'm not, I'm in the context of God in judgment when it comes to people as such as Pharaoh and his army. Cause this is what people say. Why would God say don't kill yet he is responsible for the death of, of armies and all these things in the Bible? And the Bible doesn't like sweep that under the rug. So once again, I want to dismantle that argument for you so you can feel confident in what you believe. And also when, th- when people say things to you to try to stump you and what you believe. And we're not talking about natural causes of death either, just old age and things like that. We're talking about in this context is where I, was where I want to bring it. In Exodus 14, 27 through 28, the Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. Then the waters returned and covered all the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh, and not a single one of them survived. Or what about when God flooded the whole earth by opening the fountains of the deep and sent rain for 40 days and 40 nights? In Genesis 6.13, God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them out along on the earth. Or when God sent down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, 24, and 25, then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them along with other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people in every bit of vegetation. And what about when God commanded the Amorites to be taken out in, in the case of Joshua? In fact, it says here in Joshua 10, 11, as the Amorites retreated down the road from Beth Horon, the Lord destroyed them with a terrible hailstorm from heaven that continued until they reached Azekah. The hail killed more of the enemy than the Israelites killed with the sword. So once again, when we talk about these Old Testament stories, I don't want you to get nervous. These are all reasons why we glorify Jesus. When we look at things in the Bible and we want to back away from them, I want to encourage you, don't be afraid of the things the Bible says. They are there for a reason and they are there to teach a, a powerful truth that you and I can grab a hold on to and know what we believe and why we believe it. Here's a foundational truth. I want to help us remove this contradiction. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And that's period, end of story. All of us have committed sin and do it daily. All of us are worthy of death. All of us. There's not one righteous, the Bible says. Everyone who lives, lives because God has given them life. And everyone who dies, God has allowed death to take place. Because he marks out our days. The Bible says in Job 14:5, you have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live, and we are not given a minute longer. Now, when you think about this, this is a lot about death that we do not understand, right? I cannot give us answers that God himself has not given. But we know this. One day, 
every one of us will die unless the Lord returns and we are raised into the heavens, which will be a glorious day. But we will all one in one die, one out of one. But the point in Exodus 20 is murder in the context of a crime. To try to charge God with our, our infant, our finite mind with to charge God is foolish to say that God has sinned in allowing the death of an army. We need to understand that God is incapable of committing a crime or doing something wrong. You understand that? It is not possible for God to do something wrong. It is not possible because it goes against the character of God. It goes against who he is and what he stands for. He has no abilities to do anything evil. That's what we need. That's the plumb line when we build our, our foundation of what we believe about God. It's theology 101 because of the attributes of God. He's holy. He is perfect. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's wrathful. And he is 100% righteous. Omnipresent means he's everywhere at once. Omniscient means there's, there's nothing that God does not know. He is not trying to gain knowledge somewhere. There's nothing that has slipped by him. He knows all things. So everything that comes out of God comes out of his nature. The Bible says that he has no shadow of turning. There's no darkness in God at all. In any way, in any word, in any deed, or any thought. God is unable to act in evil. Do we understand that? When we judge something as right or wrong, we're judging it from an unstable, fallen bent. We are not perfect. We are not God. We don't love more than God. We're not more compassionate than God. We're not more caring than God. We're not more patient or long-suffering than God. The very fact that we are here and getting to have a relationship with God is purely because he has initiated that relationship. And it's not based on any merit, even on our best day. Even when we had an hour and a half quiet time, listened to Caleb on the way to work. None of that establishes the righteousness of God. The question is not why does God allow people to die and go to hell? The question is why did God choose to save rebellious haters of good such as ourselves? Let's flip that question on its head. God has, God could have easily just turned his back on every human being, but God chose to send his son. I promise you none of us would do that for the guy on the corner. We wouldn't just say, oh, here, I don't know if he's going to receive, but I'm going to give my son in his place. No one would do that. See, a man-centered view of God versus a God-centered view of God. Here's how you look at it. A God-centered view of God sees God allowing someone to live 80 years in the most rebellious, dark, sin-filled life. And on their deathbed, call out to Christ and go to the same heaven that, that Billy Graham is in. That's mercy. That's grace. That's what you and I don't deserve, but we get. Right? That's the definition of long-suffering and patience. 
with that being said, God never takes life in a sinful way. God is holy, so God removes, when God removes life in, in a, a, an act of judgment, such as what he did, it's still a holy act. So I want you to understand that because God is holy. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Look now, I myself am he. There is no other God but me. I am the one who kills and gives life. I am the one who wounds and heals. You may have never read this verse in the Bible ever. It seems like each of these messages get uncomfortable. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. Praise God. We're family, right? Now, what about capital punishment or war? Now, this is one of those aspects that surely you have an opinion on. Surely you do. But this command does not violate capital punishment or war. In Genesis 9, 5, and 6, And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. So capital punishment was not considered by God an attack on his image, but the defense of it. As we talk about this, it's not about a po political point. You know, as I begin to prepare this, this was before everything that went on this week. It's before the rhetoric started and all that stuff. So I think it was, you know, it's one of those timing issues that God just knows, right? We just talked about om omniscient. But this is also carried into the New Testament. Romans 13, 1 through 5. Listen to these verses. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists this authority resists the ordinances of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise for the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. I want you to remember that verse. For he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of the wrath, but also for conscience sake. I think that is very clear. But the verses that precede this is Romans 12, 19. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave it to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. This is in the context of authority. So remember, when Paul wrote his letters, it was no chapter and verses. It was just a letter. It was an ongoing thought. And Jesus affirms this in the New Testament. If you remember the story, when Peter is in the garden and they come to arrest Jesus, he pulls his sword, Peter pulls his sword out and, and swings for the soldier and cuts his ear off. And Jesus said, put the sword away because if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And what he was meaning is if you kill this guy, you're going to be killed. And it wasn't just, you know, like a, a fortune cookie phrase. What goes around comes around or something like that. 
He was in the context of you're going to get arrested and you're going to face the death penalty. Notice when you, when you see Jesus interacting with Roman soldiers, he doesn't say, go and don't be a soldier anymore. Don't, don't go and do, not do this. I want you to see that God has established and placed authority. We as Christians not even, only need to settle if the government has been given the right by God to carry this out. Not so much if we agree in the cases or circumstances of how it's been wrongly applied. We just need to see if it's a biblical issue. I don't think anybody, any one of us in here will ever have to make those calls. What I'm trying to show you is that this is what God says about it. He has established Roman uh, gov- human government. And God has set up government to intervene in the affairs of human beings and the affairs of of what we do, what we carry out. While no individual is allowed to take vengeance on themselves, the Bible says in Revelation 12, 19, God says that he has placed authority to do that. The government is ordained of God to to, to, to keep lawlessness in check, but also to bear the sword. The sword is the instrument of death in the Old and New Testament. Romans 12, 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. When we understand this, we we can bring it into our own natural thought process. God is good. God is love. So for God to love, he has to despise what is evil, right? God realizes that he must have restraint upon sin. Softness to criminal, softness to criminals is not compassionate to the average people like us. That's what we need to understand. God loves people. And so God must punish sin. If, if you had a family member that was killed and they were brought before the judge and the judge said, I'm a loving judge. And this person is not even remorseful. They say that, in fact, I would do it again if I was let out. And the judge says, you know what? I'm a graceful, loving judge. I'm going to turn my head. Just don't do it again. You would call for that judge's head. You would say that he was corrupt. You would write something in the paper, or maybe you go on social media, and you would say that justice has not prevailed. But God is too good to not punish crime because he's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous, right? And if God did not punish sin, he would cease to be holy. That's the point that we need to understand. God is not just love. Don't think God is some puppy dog waiting for you to wake up so you can take him out to potty. Come on, man. God is love, and God is all-powerful, and God is our best friend, and all of these things. But if you want to understand the hard things of God, you have to understand God in all kind of different ways. See, Romans 13 comes really to speak about the authority of the state to carry out, not, ne- not necessarily the obligation. You understand that? Okay. I can already tell I'm in high weeds. <laughs> but listen, here are some other aspects of the Old Testament ways of doing things. There had to be proportionality. In other words, remember an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In other words, it had to... It, the, the, the crime had to equal the judgment. There, and you can see that in Exodus 21, 23 through 25. I'll just give you these verses. You can look at it on your own. 
There also had to be the certainty of guilt. Before a murderer could be executed, they had to have two witnesses that saw the act. There was no circumstantial evidence back in those days like they have DNA and all these other things. There also had to be the establishment of the certainty of guilt. Before a murderer could be executed, there had to be two witnesses to confirm that there was guilt. The intention had to be established. In other words, in Numbers 35, 22 through 24, it had to be established that it was not intentional. So in other words, he got to defend himself. Due process is another one. He had the ability to prove his innocence. So he had to go through judicial procedures according to Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 17. And there was also a reluctance to execute. Remember, Ezekiel 33:11. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. The lawgiver himself is reluctant. And, but that reluctance does not mean refusal. See, that's why we have death row today. Death row is a time where you, you're able to sit and they bring pastors to give you the gospel. In fact, Louisiana, I believe it was Angola, you, you are given, you, you have that right to, to have a, a pastor sit before you and explain the gospel to you. Here's the thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm still a little nervous with this point, but sorry about that. I heard, you heard the snot. <laughs> All right. Got to keep it light, right? Help me, Jesus. Listen, think about this. When Osama bin Laden was executed or shot, even the most staunch people that are so against the death penalty was like, oh, I agree with that, Right? The, the bomb, the, uh, the, in the Boston bombings that happened, they were trying to get those guys from the state level into the federal level to ensure the death penalty. These are people that do not agree with that, the death penalty, right? Do you not think when you have all these news programs that get up and talk about how inhumane it is, but everybody was on board saying this person needs to die. So the issue is not if you agree with the guy that shoots someone in the road and is really sorry. And, you know, I'm talking about these type issues. The issue is not whether you disagree or, or not, or you agree or disagree, because even the people that do not disagree with this said that this should happen. So, like I said, all we need to come into to conclusion with is what does God give the state authority to do? So that I'm telling you all this because it does not contradict thou shalt not murder is the whole point. We don't get to make these calls, thank God. I'd hate to make these calls. And at the same time, we should never enjoy the fact of someone that is executed, right? I remember seeing the Ted Bundy deal, and they were celebrating outside. That's a horrific thing still. We should make, just like the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, neither should we. What about war? Once again, war is to keep peace. Do you think it would be good if Hitler was still walking around? That cancer of Nazi Germany, right? But World War I and World War II bought in what? Peace. So that's what we can we can take from that, that God 
or allow these things. Now listen, whether this war and that war is righteous, that's not for us to choose. God has given the authority to the leadership and the leadership will answer to God. Amen? All right. So we see that self-defense and capital punishment and war is seen differently in the light of the sixth commandment. It was the whole point. Let's keep moving. Whew. The commandments, let's look at what the commandment forbids. Premeditated murder, you shall not murder. Abortion, euthanasia, any thought of planning out to take a human life. Now, I know that this can get a, a rough issue. I, I understand that, but I can give you instances where you would, you know, like think about the guy that a, a man killed his, his son and he ended up killing him in, in broad daylight. We would say, oh, man, that, that was deserving. But I'm talking about the act of murder. It's the act that is breaking the commandment. I know that people on the abortion have have a, a situation from here to here, and they have all kind of different reasons and arguments, and I get all that. I get what people think. I'm going to the bottom line of the act. That's what we need to see. Or provoked in the heat of the moment. You know, like a fight breaks out, right? Or or something of that nature. All these things, I believe, speaks for themselves. If somebody gets in a car and says, I'm going to kill this guy, that is premeditated murder, and that is seen, that is the essence of the sixth commandment. Number two, involuntary manslaughter or accidental murder or vehicular homicide. Even though it was a mistake, the act is still murder, right? You know, fighting and an accidental death happens. That's still murder. It's the act. In, even there's the, the neglect, negligence. You know, when you look in Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, it says, when you build a new house, you must build a railing around the edge of its flat roof that you will not be considered guilty of murder if someone falls off the roof. Kind of like if you have a trampoline. We had a trampoline when I was a kid. We had to have a fence, make sure nobody comes, jumps on it, breaks their neck. You might have a pool. You have to keep a fence up, right? Or what about this? In Exodus 21, 28 through 30, if an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox must be stoned and its flesh must not be eaten. In such a case, however, the owner will not be held liable. But suppose the ox had a reputation for goring and the owner had been informed but failed to keep it under control. If the ox then kills someone, it must be stoned and the owner must be put to death. Now, obviously, we have different rules in, in our country for that. But the point is, you can see how even that is considered murder. So to recap, murder, whether premeditated or accidental form in sin, is a violation. I want to get to self-murder, suicide. It was a Wednesday night. I got a call. It was a lady who was in tremendous pain. She was bedridden. She had pain all over her body. She had kids. And she said, I do not want to live anymore. I've called well-known TV ministries. I've called every church in this town. And I want to know what you have to say. If I kill myself, will I go to hell? That is a tough question, right? We had a long conversation. I contacted her church and got them to talk with her as well. And I'm always confronted with this question. 
you might have been confronted with this question as well. There is a belief that is out there and it's totally unbiblical. Let's just say that. They, they make it as if it's the unpardonable sin. And here's the catch 22 about it. You know, people like Jonah and Job contemplated, they were like, God, take my life. I want out of here, right? And it's a hard question to look at because somebody can take it as a license to do it. And then you have family members that are, have dealt with that and they are worried about the soul of their loved one. So it's a hard question, but it's a biblical answer. You have to look at it theologically or biblically. You may have never talked about this before, but I feel like we need to talk about it, right? Suicide is a sin, obviously. It's part of murder. However, murder is not the unforgivable sin, and neither is suicide. There is one unforgivable sin. It's called blasphemy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When the, when the Pharisees were seeing Jesus do things, they knew it was the Son of God. They said, that is of the devil. That is blasphemy. And we as Christians, if you're afraid that you committed blasphemy in the Holy Spirit, you have not, because you would not care. You would not be worried about it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you, you would be so hard hearted. You'd say, I don't want to have anything to do with God whatsoever. The essence of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is basically dying lost. The Holy Spirit is constantly wooing you to come to Christ and you say, I don't want that. And you die apart from Christ. That is, in essence, rejecting the Holy Spirit's ability to regenerate your soul. There are two groups of people in the world, saved and lost, right? We would all agree with that. Those that have their sins forgiven in Christ and those that are deciding to pay for their own sin for whatever reason. The issue is not the sin. The issue is the redeemer of the sin. Amen? I just want us to understand that first and foremost. The person that rejects Christ is hopeless, no matter what they do on this earth. But a person that is following Christ and born again may have moments of weakness. And they may re react in a state of hopelessness. Listen, you might have a bad day and you go get wasted tonight and you get bombed out of your mind. You can wake up and repent, right? Suicide or murder, you don't come back from that physically. So you cannot verbally repent, right? There are people that get to the end of their rope and they, 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 they do this act and they're unable to come back from it. What about accidental overdoses? I know we get in deep, but this is true. There are people that get dementia and lose their mental capacity to act and, and do what, what is the right thing to do. And rationale is lost. There are a variety of scenarios I could throw out. People that say, well, a Christian wouldn't commit suicide. They have hope. That's a foolish statement because you don't understand depression. You don't understand mental illness. You don't understand, understand substance abuse. You don't understand demonic oppression of all sorts. These people that say that wouldn't happen. Look at David. You mean to tell me David had Uriah's wife? I mean, Uriah killed so he could get his wife? You'd be surprised what Christians would do. I'm just going to say that, right? 
Yeah, I would never commit murder, but their tongue is long and they'll cut somebody to, to shreds like that old boy that cuts steak and sprinkles salt. Worse than that. Think about it. Here's an aspect of theology that we can understand that can give us peace. If we think that people don't make it to heaven because they did not get to repent, then we don't understand justification. Justification is positional righteousness. In other words, in Christ, God sees us just as if we have never committed a sin. We don't understand that. We keep a record a mile long of our wife's sin, of our husband's sin. But God has the ability to see us in Christ just as if we never sinned. Sanctification is living out that righteousness in Christ. When you give your life to Jesus, God, the paperwork in heaven is you are right with me. You stand before God on the day of judgment, cleansed just as if you never sinned. That's the greatest word you will hear tonight. Your daily life in living is showing what you believe. Showing what you believe. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were to get in a car wreck, and you did not repent of a certain sin. Let's just break it down to this. A decade-long feud in your family. You've been arguing with your sister or brother. You haven't spoken to them in years. Your heart is so hard towards them. If you die in that state, do you go to heaven or hell? What about knowing or unknowing sin? The person that you despise at work, that you absolutely can't stand. How about that? The business deal that you never repented of and made right. Not just say, I'm sorry, but I'm still doing my thing. I'm talking about making it right. What about the way you talk to your spouse? The white lie you told, the thought you had, and you died without verbally repenting. Would you go to heaven or hell? You would go to heaven. Because it's not, your repentance becomes a work. You see, listen, we get to repent. We don't, it's not that we have to repent. Oh, you didn't say you were sorry for stubbing your toe and saying you made up a curse word. So in heaven, I'm assuming that's a curse. God, is that a curse word? I don't know. Just, you know, write it down. No, that's not the case. Listen to these verses. I'm, I want to give you peace tonight. Colossians 2, 13 through 14. Look at what it says. You were dead because of your sins. And because your sinful nature was not yet cut away, then God made you alive and forgave all of your sins. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that just past sin? Is that present sin? Or is that your future sins? All sins. When Christ died, all of our sins were in the future. So we need to understand, we repent because we get to repent. Not because we have to repent. It's a relational issue with a relational God. Some of you might be married. And you can't say, well, because I'm married, I don't have to tell my wife I love her or I'm sorry. None of that because we're married. You would not get far down the road in your marriage and you'd be in the office. <laughs> Listen, anybody that thinks they can pray a prayer and think that they are born again and still live like they want to live is trampling the blood of Jesus. And the Bible says it would be best that you never even knew. 
Salvation is, should not be seen as a one-time transaction that says, I believe. I, it's, your life is the receipt that says, I believe. You're living out your faith that you profess. And listen, that's what I'm trying to tell you. You might have moments of weakness. God is there for you in that weakness. God is, is, is carrying you in that weakness. Listen, I want to give you another verse. Because I know this is a tough aspect of it. Believe me, I'm trembling. <laughs> Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither our fears for today, our worries of tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that it was revealed in Christ Jesus. Amen. Notice, death nor life separates us from God who are in Christ. Nothing. So if a true Christian would commit suicide, I'm talking a real, they just gave in in this area. Jude 24. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy. Say that with me. Great joy into his glorious presence without one single fault. Praise God. Amen. So put that issue to bed in your heart, in your mind. It, this, this thing that is just this thought process that, you know, it, it's, it's one of the most horrific things because people just say the dumbest things, man. They just come out and they just give this off the cuff statement with no, I mean, hear my heart. When somebody goes through a situation that is horrible or horrific, don't just try to quote a verse. Love on them, right? Be, be able to console them. And you know, there's a verse that I always go to. It's in Genesis 18.25. It says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? If there is a question in my mind about something that I don't understand, I know that God knows and he understands it and he is able to sort that out. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to toss and turn over it. I just have to trust in the character of God. But to trust in the character of God, we have to know God. We have to know who he is. We have to know what he's about. The bottom line is every human life is precious to God Almighty. And God has a purpose and a plan. And there's nothing that can separate us for the love of God. Now, I'm not saying, oh, because that's the thing. I don't want you to say, well, I can do this or that. Listen, that's not the issue. But I'm trying to give comfort to those that may have lost a family member or don't know if they if they died and had something in their heart or whatever it is, the situation, and they're unable, they toss and turn, not knowing what has happened to their loved one. According to Jude 24, they walk gloriously into the gates of pearl because their faith is in the one who saved them. And the same is for you and I. Praise God. That's the greatest news that we have this side of heaven. Now, lastly, let's look at the 
situation that I'm sure we thought we were good with until we get to Matthew 5, 21, 22. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder, but if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, I mean, if you call somebody an idiot, <laughs> yeah, I know. I think I did that yesterday. No, I'm joking. You are danger of being brought before the court. And in, and if you curse someone, the dangers of the fires of hell. Think about that. So Jesus is going down into the heart of the matter. For those that have said, I'm a good person, I've never committed murder, probably don't understand the thought process of this behind Jesus. It's a heart issue. Murder starts in the heart with bitterness. It feeds hate and it breeds action, right? That's the act of murder. But God is after our hearts. God doesn't want anger in our heart to fester towards someone that creates this cancer that spreads, spreads from people groups to race to politics, right? God doesn't like that. We've had a heavy dose of that all week, right? That's all you've probably been hearing about on the news. I'm not one of those that says turn the news off. I listen to see what's going on to see how close the Lord is. But Jesus sums it up when he says, love your neighbor. Going back to the second tablet of commandments. This, sec this sixth commandment has been seen in Christ laying his life down for those that hated him and despised him. His dying for us is the greatest act showing us about loving our neighbor. And we have seen this in these shootings, right? People are throwing themselves to protect the person that is, the bullets are coming and they're losing their life. The Bible says, greater love has no one than this, that he that lay his life down for their friends. Our soldiers that have lost their lives because of our freedoms. This verse is for them as well. There's no greater act that you and I have received is the pardon of Christ by what he's accomplished on Calvary. Christ laid his life down. They beat him, they spit on him, and ultimately he was crucified for those that hated him, for you and I. For you and I. He did that for you and for me. He didn't do that for himself. He was perfect. He was holy. He showed us forgiveness in the truest form by taking the first step in re reconciliation. In other words, while we were yet unrepentant, Christ died right? Let that sink in. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. That tells me that he has empowered us to take the first step as well in offering forgiveness to what somebody else has done to us. We are empowered to forgive those who despitefully use us, right? Those that don't like us, God is saying, you're the church, you step out and forgive, right? The benefit is for us. The benefit is so we can have a, a right standing, a right living our life without any hindrances before God. A healed heart stops murder in its tracks. It stops it. It stops hate. It, it digs up the seed of hatred towards somebody when we, when we give ourselves over to Christ and he's able to heal those areas of our heart. If we want hate to stop in the world, we got to start by getting real in ourselves. 
We can't look out there. We got to look in here. If everybody would look internally and begin to deal with those things, other people would do that as well, and the world would be healed. Listen, it starts with us. The church leads this. The church is the moral barometer on this earth. The church is the healing agent in this earth. It is our responsibility to not pick up the world's mentality that says, if you say this, I'm coming this way and, and all this and that. It's saying, I'm laying my, my life down. I'm laying down for the sake of Christ. I'm going to pick up what Christ believes. I'm going to pick up what Christ says, and I'm going to walk that out. Like Martin Luther King said, love drives out hate. Right? I'm not saying you're going to commit the act. I'm saying don't even let that fester. Don't you just, don't you just hate tossing and turning with that bitter pill of thinking about someone else who's just walking, living their little happy life, and you're drinking this poison? You're carrying them around like a book sack, and they're just, you know, living this perfect life. Come on, man. We just got to start releasing those things to God. God, you know what they did. I know what they did. You know that they're key, they're continually doing this. But my relationship with you is way more important than, than what I'm experiencing right now. And I need peace. I need joy. I need happiness. And I'm not going to let someone remove that from me. That's the mentality that we should have. We can, we're going to be closing up, but you can stay seated. What I'm trying to get us to see tonight is I want you to understand some things so you can know what you believe. I want you to be healed of some, some, some things you may be going through, some struggles you may be having emotionally. I want you to see the motive for forgiveness, the motive for trying to live a right life is so Christ could be glorified. And I pray that as we talked about this, you can begin to build that healing process in your own heart and mind. That's really the goal. And I wanted to take away some of the contradictions that people say, well, I don't believe the Bible and I don't believe God because of this and that. I think those things need to be explained sometimes. So I want us to close our, close our eyes and bow our heads, and I'm just going to pray. God, I'm just praying right now that you would give us the grace, Lord, to first of all, heal our own hearts, God. We're asking that you would begin to heal our own hearts, God, from, from things that people have done, family members, friends, enemies, God. We lay those people down. And we pick up your grace. We pick up your mercy. Lord, we know that you would deal with those things. Father, we, we know right now if there's anything that is separating us from you, God, we bring that before you. And we just say right now, Lord, I repent of the thoughts that I've had, of the frustrations that I've allowed to consume me, of the anger that I have had towards people. Lord, start with us. Start with healing our heart, our spirit, our brokenness. Lord, we bring that before you and we pick up the righteousness of Christ. We pick up his abilities to turn the other cheek. We picked up, we pick up his ability to forgive because he forgave us. Lord, I'm asking if there are people that are here that do not know you, that are against you. God, that you'd begin to soften their hearts, that we, they would begin to see that you are a God of love. 
you are a God of mercy, that they have not gone too far, that they have not done something so bad that you will not forgive them. Father, I'm asking right now that you would let them sense your mercy and your grace, that it would begin to break down the hardness of the heart that is sitting here before you. And God, that you'd begin to revive their spiritual life. You'd begin to revive their heart. You'd you'd begin to revive their mind to think godly, to, to reach for righteousness, Lord. And God, I'm thanking you right now in advance that I know that there are people that are here that are healed in their heart because of what your word has said, Lord. And God, I thank you right now that this has been a labor of love for your people. God, we honor you right now. We give you praise and we give you glory for your ability to work in every single heart and heal every single life. In Jesus' name, I pray and ask. And the church said, amen, amen. Praise God.